0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimier Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimierbaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, I'm telling the truth and I'm not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety.
1: Well we do want to try to deal with this issue today, uh, this issue of women in ministry. And it's a pretty complex one as you can imagine and this is going to take a little bit of time. I could take more time but this is as much time as we're going to be able to take this morning. And I want to kind of walk us through some of the issues. By way of introduction, let me just let you know, if you don't know, that this is a pretty hot topic in evangelical churches, Uh, particularly in Sydney. It's a pretty hot topic. It's uh, fairly controversial with equally committed Christians on both sides, Bible-believing Christians who are seeking uh, to obey what the Bible has to say to us, arguing for very different positions. And I'll come back to that a little bit later on. It's also fairly important, though, to recognize that this is not a particularly controversial issue here at Gaimia. Um, So this is a, a question that's been raised by the people in our congregations that has been decided. That is one of the tough questions that we want to deal with. But we are not dealing with some faction. Um, I'm not trying to put down some faction. We're not trying to deal with a a bunch of controversial people or whatever it is within our membership. Um, I believe from some of my conversations with those of you in our congregations that some of you have felt the heat of this discussion and kind of want to know what the issues are more than anything else. So it's fairly important that I state that, that this is not a controversial issue, and we don't intend it to be here either. There are, broadly speaking, two positions that you will find in evangelical circles on this. The first is what's called the complementarian position. And the complementarian position argues that men and women are created equal. And can I just say that that's not actually the debate? The debate has nothing to do with the equality of men and women. It has to do with their roles that God has ordained to them. So a complementarian position is that men and women were created equal in the sight of God, but that God also ordained specific and particular complementary roles for them to hold. The two that are most frequently cited are about male headship in the house and this passage out of 1 Timothy chapter 2 about women not teaching or having authority over men in mixed settings, such as a a public setting of worship. The other position is known as the egalitarian position. It It would also argue that men and women are equal in the sight of God, but that they are also equally able to hold positions of authority, particularly in the church. Uh, In terms of where you sit, you are actually sitting in a church that holds the egalitarian position. Uh, Last week were some of my thoughts on predestination and free will. This is the position of the church leadership. Uh, It reflects not only our beliefs as a leadership, but it also reflects our practice for a long, long time. Uh, uh, We have had women involved in ministry, involved in preaching, not all the time obviously, but fairly regularly uh, for any number of years now, and that's an important place again to start. So what I want to do this morning is I actually want to walk you through some of the issues surrounding this text in 1 Timothy 2. If you've never thought this was a controversial issue, you're soon going to find out why it is. If you're familiar with some of the controversy, well, you're going to get my perspective on some of that um, and how we can work our way through it. So here's the text again. This is in the TNIV, and this is the section from, uh, first, sorry, from 11 to um, uh, 15 from First Timothy 2. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the first one one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, if this were the only passage that we had in the New Testament, if this were the only passage we had in the New Testament that referred to women and and, and ministry, I think we would be hard-pressed to avoid the implications that women should not teach or have authority over men. If this were the only text that we have. Now, it's not, and that's part of the complicating factor. But can I also say that even if this were the only text we had, this is not a simple text. There are a number of reasons why it's not simple. First of all, it begins with a woman should learn in full submission. But the context seems to suggest that it could also be wife, doesn't it? Particularly in relationship to uh, childbearing at the end and its similarity to a passage in 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll look at in a few moments' time. And the word that's used, the Greek word, could be woman or wife, which certainly changes it, doesn't it? If it's wives, well, that's a little bit more specific than women, generally. Secondly, we have the question of what in the world Paul means by having authority over. Uh, The term that he uses there is what's known as a hapex legomena. In other words, it's a Greek word that is only found once in the New Testament, which means that we only have one place to work out from its context what it means. The normal word that's used for authority is exousia, which is used all the way through the New Testament. This has the edge of domineering, uh, of violence associated with it. And it's only used here, which makes it a more complicated term than the standard word. It's also interesting, isn't it, that Paul says, I do not permit, which is a little bit more open-ended than I forbid or I command that. Uh, It can also be translated as I do not allow, which suggests that there might be another time when he might allow. It's It's an odd phrase for him to use. Then you've got that whole bit about Eve. What's that all about? Uh, And, of course, it's a big deal because Paul goes back to creation accounts. You're going back to creation accounts. That's a a pretty big argument, and we need to kind of work that out. And, finally, the issue of being saved through childbearing. That's the word for saved, for salvation. Now, as far as I was aware, that people are saved, men and women are saved through faith in Christ, not through childbearing. Uh, And so what in the world do we do with that? How do we make some sense of that? So even if this were our only passage that talked about women and ministry, it would be a complex one. You follow me so far? But it's not the only text that we have, and this is what makes it more complex for us. So what I want to do is I want to work our way through the text this morning. If you have your Bibles with you and want to open to 1 Timothy chapter 2 uh, and actually and, and put your finger there and then flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, because when we look at this passage in First Timothy chapter 2, we actually find that it's in the context of the instructions for public worship. That's why I had Sue read the entire chapter. It's talking about what, it's supposed to, what you're supposed to be doing in the midst of, con- of public worship. And in this sense, we have other passages that talk about the same issue. So in First Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, Paul says, "...women should remain silent in churches." They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for women to speak in the church. Another wonderful passage, isn't it? Okay. But notice the similarities between 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. But in 1 Corinthians 14, the context is obviously between a wife and a husband. Even though it's translated as women, it seems more confined, doesn't it? A woman should ask her husband at home to find out. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we are in another context of public worship that actually begins in chapter 11 if you go back to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, you find a very interesting thing. In verse 2, Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Yeah. You still with me on this? Okay. Now... Here's what's interesting about that. Paul says that women can prophesy and pray in a public setting of worship as long as their head is covered. Which means that the ban here in 1 Corinthians 14 does not seem to be a total ban on women speaking in church. There seems to be something about it that's specific, shall we say. Because Paul says it's okay for a woman, if she wants, to prophesy or to pray aloud in the congregation, in the setting of worship, as long as she has her head covered. Now, it's reasonable, I think, to assume that the head coverings and long hair is actually culturally bound here. In other words, that Paul is addressing a specific circumstance in Corinth that means that that meant that women who had their heads uncovered d- did a disgraceful thing in our context. I think it's quite appropriate for women to have short haircuts i don't know how short it would have to be to be qualified as short or long. I think it's appropriate for us not to have head coverings, and I think, as it says later in the passage it's equally okay for men to have long hair because Paul says in verse I think 14 it is. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? I think those are culturally bound issues. But that doesn't mean we can just take 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 and just chuck out the bits we don't like, does it? We can't just say that with Scripture. That's a pretty dangerous position to say, well, that's cultural, so let's get rid of it. There seems to be some sort of a principle that undergirds what Paul is getting at. And here's what I think the principle is. His concern is that the gospel is not brought into disrepute. And his argument goes, I think, something like this, that throwing off or flaunting social conventions risks the reputation of the gospel. So to the women in Corinth, he's saying, if you, if you go around prophesying and, and whatnot in your services and you take your head coverings off, it's a disgrace. You're making the gospel look bad because of how you're acting. Do you follow me on that? This seems to be Paul's primary concern, and I think we can trace it in a number of different locations. I think this principle actually sits behind the household codes that we find elsewhere in Scripture. You're familiar with those sorts of codes? If you have a look in Ephesians, for instance, Ephesians chapter 5, it begins, verse 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he has a whole bunch of those other tough questions. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. In verse uh, 22 and verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents and the Lord. And chapter 6, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Now you can look at that and say Paul is just supporting patriarchy and slavery. Or you can actually look at this and say that what Paul is actually seeking to do is to make sure the gospel does not fall into disrepute. Because if men and women in their culture start throwing off normal social conventions that other people think are normal and right and proper, and start acting like none of them matter, the gospel is going to be considered as a dangerous, subversive anarchy rather than the freeing, liberating good news of Jesus Christ. And the name of Jesus will come into disrepute because people will think that those who believe in Jesus no longer live like normal people. Do you follow me? And notice that these household codes, although they're similar to to codes that we find in other writings, also have the Christian principle of mutual submission. Things that are distinctly and purposely Christian. I also want you to notice that in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 and in 1 Timothy 2, these are not presented as moral issues. Did you notice that? It's a disgrace for a woman to prophesy with her head uncovered. He doesn't say it's sinful. In the other vice lists, Paul does not say, do not be greedy, sexually immoral, or allow a woman to teach. You follow me? These are not presented as moral issues. Which I think is fairly important. Now, if you jump back then to this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I think we can see that perhaps, perhaps part of the context has to do with this bringing the gospel into disrepute. Because notice the sorts of things that he talks about. In verses 9, he begins to talk about female modesty. He's concerned in public worship with female modesty. Isn't that interesting? Now, you know, we we have uh, kind of standards of, of dress for those who are on the platform, right? And that would include some modesty in our dress, appropriateness in our dress. But Paul's saying, to you, be modest in your dress. Well, that's a strange thing to include in a list on public worship. Unless, by immodest dress, we bring the gospel into disrepute. Similarly... Uh, He talks about, in verse 11, this whole idea of a woman submitting to her husband. That may also have had to do with these issues of social convention. There are some scholars in in the context of 1 Corinthians 14 who suggest that it was just socially unacceptable for women to be piping up in church, asking questions as the sermon was being delivered. They should wait. That's just rude. Now, there may also be an issue of education at this point in time. Women did not have the same educational Opportunities that men did in the ancient world And realistically we don't want someone Who doesn't have any education teaching other people Do we? Male or female But in this context that may have had Something to do with it And then finally you've got that reference To, to, be, to those who will be saved through Childbearing Now notice that childbearing is kind of a, a Normal social convention Right? Particularly antiquity It's kind of what women did Shall we say And you could, and I read this in a complementarian author, you could argue that what Paul is saying is that women are saved or they actually give evidence of their salvation by doing the things that are appropriate in their context and, as he goes on to say, love and faith and all those other things. The stuff that we normally associate with discipleship. You follow me? That's one layer on that. Now, if we jump ahead to the 21st century. And I I feel a little bit like the old Spice ad. Look to your Bible, look to me. Look to the Bible, look to me. Right? so we'll see how we go with this. But if you jump to the 21st century and consider then the principle that Paul is talking about, about bringing the gospel into disrepute, I ask the question, are we bringing the gospel into disrepute by not allowing women to teach? And we live in a culture where women have equal opportunities educationally and occupationally women are involved in leadership over men in nearly every single area of our world and nobody questions it we have had and may possibly have a female prime minister I don't hear anybody saying we shouldn't listen to her or respect her if she tries to teach us anything are we perhaps bringing the gospel into disrepute by limiting their roles in our context which is very different than Paul's I think perhaps we might but these are not the only passages that refer to women in ministry. We actually have a whole bunch of stuff. A whole bunch of stuff that's changed quite significantly. Uh, in Sorry, a whole bunch of passages that reflect what was going on in the ancient world. The wider New Testament context actually reveals for us that women were, were actively involved in all forms of ministry, even teaching. And I'm going to flash through these pretty quickly. We're not going to take a lot of time to, to discuss them. But for instance... The first witnesses to the resurrection were women. In Jewish culture, women's testimony was not valid. And yet all four gospel accounts say the first and only witnesses of the resurrection in the the immediate context were women. That's pretty interesting. And when you have a look in the book of Acts, you find that Philip had four prophetess daughters. Uh, Acts chapter 21 verse 9. Uh, if you go uh, elsewhere, particularly into Romans, you find that Priscilla is called Paul's co-worker and taught Paulus with her husband. Uh, in Romans 16, it will come with men- make a, a couple of mentions in Romans 16, but being called Paul's co-worker is actually a fairly loaded term. It's a gospel term. Paul doesn't mean that she made biscuits and coffee while I did the real work. What he means when he says you are my co-worker, male or female, is that we, we worked together for the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, the establishing of churches, those are his co-workers. And in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, Priscilla, who is listed first, not her husband Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila overheard Apollos' teaching and realized he didn't know what he was talking about, took him home and taught him the truth of the gospel. I find that interesting. If you move on, you've got Phoebe, was called the deacon, in Romans 16 verse 1. Paul actually advocates for her. In verse 7 of Romans 16, we have Junia, who is listed as outstanding among the apostles. And the apostles were those who were the witnesses to Jesus' teaching and His resurrection, and who were charged with the proclamation of the good news. That was part and parcel of their task. Women function as prophetesses in Corinth, as we've already seen in 1 Corinthians verse chapter 11. Syntyche and Euodia are listed as Paul's co-workers for the gospel in Philippians 4:2-3. And furthermore, gender does not appear to be a factor in any of the gift lists in the New Testament. So, if you have a look at Romans 12:7, 1 Corinthians 12:28, Ephesians 4:11, which talk about the gifts of teaching and leadership, Paul does not say anything about gender. Instead, the Holy Spirit has given the gifts to the church. He doesn't make any distinction. He doesn't say, you know, so if it's hospitality, off you go, ladies. Uh, if it's serving, you know, we can both do that. If it's teaching, men, you know what to do, ladies. You can teach kids and other women, I suppose, but not men, right? doesn't make any distinction about gender there. Gender does not seem to be particularly important. And in Colossians chapter 3.16, he actually assumes that men and women will teach and admonish one another part and parcel of what he expects to be taking place in the church. When you consider also, on top of that, the qualities of teachers in the New Testament, we actually find a fairly interesting thing. The concern throughout the New Testament is not with gender or race or socioeconomic status. Paul nowhere says, for instance, that Gentiles shouldn't teach the the, the Bible. He doesn't say, you know, listen, you Gentiles, you have no idea about the Old Testament. Jews who know the Old Testament should teach. Gentiles, Now, nah. Race, uh, socioeconomic status, nor gender seems to be particularly important. What's emphasized is faithfulness to sound doctrine, and on top of that, aspects of character. And one of the most interesting and widely repeated pieces of character is that they do not want money for preaching the gospel. This is actually one of the key things that you find in 1 Timothy, in chapters 3 and in chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 2, 17, 1 Thessalonians 2, 5, 1 Peter 5, 2, 2, Peter 2, 3 and 14. That's a handful of times where something about the, the character of the person who is proclaiming the gospel is linked with not being greedy and wanting money out of it. Notice that gender isn't part of that. Now, again, if I can jump back to the 21st century. If the New Testament is not concerned so much with gender, is restricting women a pseudo-donatism? You say, I don't know. What's a pseudo-donatist? Um, donatism was a 4th century heresy um, that actually linked the effectiveness of the sacraments with the worth of the priest officiating It was a very, very complicated heresy, as heresies tend to be. But one of the undergirding arguments, the theological basis, was this. They said, they argued, that the effectiveness of a sacrament, particularly of baptism, was was basically linked to the worth of the, the one officiating. Do you see the danger of that? It means that if I baptize you, and you come into membership in the church, and years later you find out that I was some drop-kick lunatic who had absolutely no real faith at all, is your baptism still valid? If you found out that I was no longer a worthy officiator over your baptism, would you have to come back and say, listen, the bloke who baptized me was a drop-kick. I need to be done again because I don't think it mattered. Do you see the danger of that? What if you hear the gospel from someone who then chucks in the faith? Does that mean that your faith is invalid? Do you see how dangerous that idea is? Well, the church's response was to say that the sacrament is effective apart from the worth of the one officiating. Baptism works because God's in it. The gospel works because God's in it. Yes, as a, as a minister of the gospel, I should try to seek to be godly and above reproach and all of those things. But, oh, Lord, help us if the effectiveness of preaching or baptism or anything resides on me and my character. We're in all sorts of trouble. And I think the same would be true if it were regarding on your character, isn't it? The gospel is powerful because God is in it. So if you tell me that a woman preaching sound doctrine or the gospel of Jesus Christ is somehow invalid, that sounds like you are placing a requirement on the gender of the one who is speaking. Which seems to me a slippery slope to Donatism. You follow me? We need to be very careful about the sorts of things that we proclaim and declare. Jumping back to 1 Timothy two, back to me now, back to the text. That commercial has just done me so much good. <laughs> all right, now, either if we if we take into effect all the, all the fact that the, sorry the women who were involved in ministry, either. Women were normally not allowed to teach, right? As we have in First Timothy 2 right? So this is the norm that women were not allowed to teach, and the other New Testament references are exceptions, or the other, right? The other passages reflect the norm, and women were normally allowed to teach, and First Timothy is the exception, because we can't really have it both ways, right? Because we have all sorts of evidence from the New Testament, and we haven't even looked at the Old, where again you had prophetesses, you had Deborah who led Israel. Right. Miriam led Israel with Aaron and Moses, her brothers. Right. We have lots of other evidence as well that suggests that something else is going on. So either 1 Timothy is normal and all those others are exceptions, or all those others are normal and 1 Timothy is an exception. You with me? Okay. The problem with suggesting that 1 Timothy is normal is that none of those other examples are listed as exceptional. Paul doesn't say in Romans 16. One. Now, Phoebe is a deacon, and I know, I know what you're thinking. That's just kind of out of the box. Let me explain. He doesn't say in verse 7, Junia is outstanding among the apostles. And I know you're surprised to hear that, so let me tell you why this is exceptional. Luke does not say that Priscilla taught Apollos, and, you know, well, let me explain why that was so weird. They just state them. There's, it seems that there was something about the gospel of Jesus Christ that brought freedom to men and women to minister. I mean, isn't it interesting if we go back to the household codes, we go back to the whole disgraceful bit, that, that men and women, in, at least in Corinth, had felt that they could throw off social conventions because of the gospel. And Paul affirms the freedom that they are under, doesn't he? He always affirms the freedom of the gospel. You have become free. Now, don't use that freedom in a way that's not helpful for the gospel cause seems that there's something about the gospel that is freeing. That releases men and women to be men and women of God. That releases slaves to be children of God. That releases people who are marginalized with no status to actually minister and serve in the kingdom of God. Is there anything exceptional in 1 Timothy 2, 11-15? Is there anything in the context that suggests that Paul's Lack of permission here is exceptional. And I think that there might be. One of the things, if you read through First Timothy all in one go, is that Paul is concerned that Timothy confront false teachers. He mentions them in chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, again in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and again in chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. Okay? That's the first piece. So he's very concerned in Ephesus, where, where Timothy is, to confront false teaching. He also has this very interesting piece about women who might become busybodies. Chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. He's talking about widows. And he's talking here specifically about young widows. And I want you to listen to how he describes it. He says, besides, speaking of young widows, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. Okay, fair call, we say. But then listen to what he says. So I counsel young widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes. Social convention. And then listen. To give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Isn't that interesting? So I want them to do the normal things. So that they're not busybodies in gossips, and so they don't give the enemy an opportunity to slander the gospel, which is what we saw before, isn't it? And then he goes on to say this, and this is really interesting. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. Now, that's a big jump from kind of household gossip about the upper class of Ephesus, isn't it? Now, this sounds like something quite significant. They've abandoned the faith to follow Satan? What happened to being just an idle busybody? It may be, it may be that the false teachers were actually targeting the women in the church who possibly were more easily deceived because of their lack of education. Now notice that this isn't making 1 Timothy 2 any easier, but it's shedding some different light on it, isn't it? So, what about Eve? What do we do with this Eve thing? And the question is ultimately whether or not Paul's reference to Eve is foundational or illustrative. If it's foundational, what he's arguing is women shouldn't teach men because Eve was created second. It's a foundational reason for it. Now, let me make a couple of pretty significant comments about this. When Paul goes back (coughs) to the creation account, um, the, the creation texts are not primarily about gender. The creation texts are not primarily about gender. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, it tells us that God created humanity, male and female, in his image and gave them the same directives. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. No gender issues at all there, is there? In Genesis chapter 2, the woman is created as a helper suitable for the man. And the term helper is actually used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe God as a helper for Israel. It's not about subordination at all. It's about a suitability. The animals are not appropriate for the man. The woman is. Furthermore, there's nothing about headship or authority or teaching found in these texts. That's read back into them from the New Testament. And having said that, the temptation scene is, does depict rather, a reversal of the created order. The serpent deceives the woman and then the man and this is intentional and is an important part of the narrative because of the consequences of the fall right where the relationships between each of those parties is broken but notice that Eve is guilty not of disobeying her husband's authority or overstepping male headship but for disobeying God And Adam is likewise not critiqued or criticized for allowing his wife to to teach him or or to take leadership in that situation. He is found guilty of the same thing, of disobeying the prohibition of God. And furthermore, there is absolutely no biblical basis to suggest that women are more easily deceived than men. (laughs) Nothing. You will not find it. In fact, if you think about it, if women are more easily deceived than men, why in the world would they be allowed to teach at all? Especially other easily deceived women or impressionable children. Because we'll often allow, even complementarians will allow women to teach other women or children. That seems foolish if what what Paul is saying here is actually foundational. I think it's better to understand Paul's reference to creation in First Timothy chapter 2, as an illustration. He uses the order of creation to suggest that there are social conventions that they ought to fit within, the man and the woman and the, and the household and whatnot. But the description of Eve is actually an illustration. It's an illustration, it's an example where a woman was deceived with disastrous consequences. In chapter 5, isn't that what we see? these young widows who will begin to talk nonsense, which Paul then says has disastrous consequences of following after Satan. Just as Eve was deceived, and you know how that ended up, make sure that you handle these false prophets, these, sorry, these false teachers, and make sure that young widows remarry and have kids and manage their households so that the enemy doesn't have an opportunity to slander and they don't fall away and begin to follow Satan. Do you follow me on this? What's the bottom line? If you're wondering if I'd ever get to one, I'm going to have a crack at one. What's the bottom line? The bottom line seems to me to be this. In the wider context of the Bible, it appears justified that women can and should teach and lead the church, including men. I believe that. I think it's important that we affirm that. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 to 15, which is still a tough passage. Don't let me fool you into thinking that, oh, we've just solved it all. Isn't that simple? It's still a complex passage. But in 1 Timothy 2, Paul is addressing a specific, somewhat exceptional circumstance in Ephesus. It's somewhat exceptional because it seems that in, first, in, sorry, in Corinth he had the same kinds of issues. That women in particular were throwing off some of the, the, the normal constraints of social convention, bringing the gospel into disrepute, and possibly, with a lack of education, doing more damage than good. This is a specific situation. His primary concern, I would argue, seems to be the reputation of the gospel and sound doctrine. And that should be our concern as well. Our primary concern should be with sound doctrine and good teaching. Now let me just wrap up by making a couple of observations. This is not a salvation issue but it does concern the gospel. This is not a salvation issue. Anyone who tells you that if you don't believe one of these views, you're therefore not a Christian, is wrong and is falling into the category of false teachers, I reckon. This is not a salvation question. We will not stand before the throne of God to answer several questions about our faith. It's not going to be a matter of saying, did you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I did. Did you think women should teach in in churches? Yes, I did. Bon, bon, Sorry. You were so close. You follow me? This is not a salvation issue, but it does concern the gospel. And therefore, it is worth fighting about, can I say, in love and respect and stuff. Right? I am convinced that this is true. And therefore, that there are those who are equally committed to the Bible, who are equally committed in their faith. Who I believe are wrong. Now, I will also say that they are Christians, because it's possible to be a Christian and hold either of these positions. But the reason I am so passionate about it is because it is an issue of the gospel, and the gospel is about freedom. It is about freedom, and it is about liberty, and it is about who we are meant to be in Christ. And I believe the way God created us initially was for equality in all things. And that that needs to be reflected in the church. And we do women and the gospel a great disservice by restricting their roles. That is what I believe. Want to take me on about it? Happy to have the fight in love. And walk away saying you're still a Christian. Not sure I'll hang out with you heaps, but we'll kind of work that out. You follow me on that though? We need to be convinced of these things. This is not a salvation issue, but it is a gospel issue and therefore it's important. But can I suggest then in conclusion that we need to be more concerned with the content of the message and not the gender of the messenger. If you come into a church and you go, oh, it's a man preaching good and turn your brain off, that is not a good picture. Let me ask you this. Could you pick A heretical message? I don't care who delivered it, man or woman, could you pick it? Do you actually know sound teaching and doctrine? Do you know it? Do you know it so you could listen to something and go, that's not right? That doesn't line up with the apostolic teaching about Jesus. Do you know it? Because if you don't, that's a much bigger issue than whether or not you like women or men preaching is a much bigger deal that we are concerned for the gospel. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there are all sorts of things out there that are not the gospel. There are all sorts of things that no longer fall into the category of sound doctrine and good teaching. Can you pick it? Once you can pick it, then maybe we can go back to the issue of gender. But until then, I think we need to be seriously concerned To make sure we know good, solid teaching. I believe that if a man or woman does not teach sound doctrine, they should not teach. Not because of their gender, but because they're teaching the wrong thing. That can have disastrous consequences. I'm going to pray in a moment, and uh, we're going to conclude our service. We have run a little bit late. I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm not sure if you are. Um, but we're going to sing Amazing Grace, because it actually contains, um, it contains some of that good doctrine, doesn't it? It's a song. It, it's, it's not couched in theological language, but it, it frames up for us a lot of what we believe, which is the stuff that's really important for us. But just before I do, let me just uh, point out that I've got a couple of references here, a couple of texts that you might find useful. The first of these by uh, uh, James Beck and Craig Blumberg, who are the editors, entitled Two Views on Women in Ministry. Um, Very helpful series, the Counterpoint series. It actually has a whole bunch of books on a variety of topics. And Bruce Nelson, I think, was able to get half a dozen copies. Um, So if you'd like to read that, it's basically got the two views on women, the complementarian and the egalitarian, and I think two authors for both positions. And they basically outline their positions all the way through. Very, very helpful. We'll introduce you to some of the more complex issues in this debate. The second one, which we don't have at the bookstall, but if you wanted to track down, you possibly could, is Ben Witherington III. It's a bit of a dated text now, but it's about women um, in the genesis of the Christian movement, basically looking at um, women's roles in not only in the New Testament but in earlier Christianity and in, in relationship to what we know about women's roles in Jewish society, Greek society, and Roman society. Uh, so those are two very helpful texts. Uh, ben Witherington doesn't deal with the issue in that book about women in ministry. He just outlines some of some of the stuff that goes into the debate about it. So uh, at least one of those books is available at the back. If you want more books, I can shoot you some more references, and well, you can just read until the cows come home. So, but let me take a moment to pray as the as the band comes to lead us, and uh, we will stand and worship together as the people of God. So will you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, um, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel of liberty and of freedom, a liberty from our sinfulness and our wickedness and the judgment that we fall under, and, and a freedom that we celebrated this morning in communion. We thank you for a freedom from fear and anxiety because, as we sang earlier, you alone are God. You alone provide us with all things, you alone can be trusted. We thank you for the great gospel of liberation and freedom and how it works its way out in our lives. Lord, I pray that as we we grapple with this sort of issue and others like it that are not salvation issues but are gospel issues, that we would do so with integrity, with vigor, that we would do it with courage, and that we would disagree with those around us with love, and respect that this would not become a divisive issue in our communities but a helpful one. Lord Jesus, we want to be people who know you and who can recognize sound teaching and good doctrine. I pray that you would continue through your Holy Spirit to to develop in us a spirit of discernment
0: and wisdom in that area. And we pray this in your name.